Isaiah chapter 65. We're going to start in verse 17 uh, and go to the end of that chapter. For behold, I create new heavens and a new earth, and the former things shall not be remembered or come into mind. But be glad and rejoice forever in that which I create. For behold, I create Jerusalem to be a joy and her people to be a gladness. I will rejoice in Jerusalem and be glad in my people. No more shall be heard in it the sound of weeping and the cries of distress. No more shall there be in it an infant who lives but a few days or an old man who does not fill out his days. For the young man shall die a hundred years old and the sinner a hundred years old shall be accursed. They shall build houses and inhabit them. They shall plant vineyards and eat their fruit. They shall not build and another inhabit. They shall not plant and another eat. For like the days of a tree shall the days of my people be, and my chosen shall long enjoy the work of their hands. They shall not labor in vain or bear children for calamity, for they shall be the offspring of the blessed of the Lord and their descendants with them. Before they call, I will answer. While they are yet speaking, I will hear. The wolf and the lamb shall graze together. The lion shall eat straw like the ox, and dust shall be the serpent's food. They shall not hurt or destroy in all my holy mountain, says the Lord. Word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Good morning. I'm Richard, one of the elders here. I'm excited to be preaching again. Uh, we're now in week five of six on our series on the gospel at work, and I know uh, a lot of people here are joining us for the first time in week five of the series. So quick overview that brings us up to today and gives us context. We started five weeks ago, appropriately at the beginning, um, seeing that work was included by God as a good part of a good creation. Indeed, we saw that God himself was the first worker, the very first verse of the Bible, in the beginning God made God's acting before anything else happens. He's doing work. Central to that message on God's design for work was something that theologians call the cultural mandate. And I'm going to refer to that several times. That's in Genesis 128, where God says to the man and the woman that God made in his image, be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth and subdue it and have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heavens and over every living thing that moves on the earth. In other words, God was telling people, continue the good work I've started using the good raw materials I've given you and build something out of it. Unfortunately, as we saw in week two of the series, work is cursed. Not work is a curse, but there's a curse on work, indeed on all of creation, that breaks it, that breaks work and that breaks everything else. And we, we know this viscerally, things are not as they should be. Because humanity rebelled against God, as we see in Genesis 3, the goodness of work got twisted. Our work is now subject to futility and toil, and it's marred by our own sin and the sin of other people towards us. And in the last two weeks, Matt went deep into two particular ways this shows up in our work. One is the way we can find identity in our work in a way that we should only be finding our identity in Christ. And two, how work can become an idol for us or can be connected to idols, things that take the place of God in our lives. 
Back in week two, I joked that Mac got the good news in week one about God's design for work, and I got the bad news with work in the fall. Now it evens back out, because Matt has had two weeks of sharing more of the bad news, and I get to share the really good news this week, namely that God is in the process of undoing the damage of the fall on all things, including work, and we're going to look at what that means for us as followers of Christ as we work. The undoing of the curse is often referred to by theologians as redemption or paying a price to claim back something that's, that's yours, like you redeem a gift certificate for something that you're kind of owed because you have that. And in this case, the thing that God's redeeming is all of creation and us and the world that he made, and he's buying that back at the price of Jesus' death on the cross. As God redeems all of creation, work included, He's establishing for himself an everlasting kingdom, and we're part of it. So today we're going to look at three things. One, the ultimate future of work in the kingdom of God. Two, what work looks like in the already but not yet kingdom, as it's here but not fully realized. And three, how we work as citizens of that kingdom. And a reminder for, the, for people who have been here before or for people who are just joining us, when we talk about work here, we're not just talking about what you do in a job as an employee. We're talking about all kinds of work in our lives, things like raising children, doing housework, mowing the lawn, pursuing hobbies, like all the things we do as work fall under this category, not just jobs. Because you know, Adam and Eve in the garden, when work first existed, didn't have a job I guess God delegated work to them, but it was just part of their life. It was them doing work. All right, part one, the ultimate future of work in the kingdom of God. Our reading today was from Isaiah 65, which is in the middle of a larger section from 60 to 66, where the prophet Isaiah is describing what it's going to be like when God is ultimately victorious and saves his people. The whole first half of Isaiah like up through the 30s, is Isaiah calling the kingdom of Judah to judgment for failing to love God well, for failing to love their neighbor and do justice. But throughout, there's this thread of hope that God is going to fix what's broken in a way that they can't fix it for themselves. There's judgment and condemnation for the people of God right alongside hope and promise. And in fact, Isaiah has the clearest prophecies about Jesus and the gospel in the whole Old Testament, which is why at Christmas time we read large chunks of Isaiah. It's why Handel's Messiah is almost word for word straight out of Isaiah, because that's where this great prophecy of hope is. Even just in that little piece of Isaiah 65, it's clear that God's going to act in a big way to save his people. And more than that, to save all nations through his people as he promised to Abraham way back in Genesis 12. Isaiah 60 to 66 are essentially the answer to, once this new king comes, who's a descendant of David, but greater, and once he establishes his kingdom for his people, what's that new kingdom going to be like? And there's a lot we could say about it, even just in that fairly short section of Isaiah 65 that we read today. But today we're going to focus on the implications for work. And they're actually rather surprising. In week one of the series, when Matt showed from Genesis 1 and 2 how work was part of a good creation before sin entered the world, that might have been surprising for you. You might have thought, as many people do, that work is a consequence of the fall. Like, now we have to work because things are broken, uh, which we now know isn't the case. 
in week two, when I showed from Genesis 3 that work is cursed and broken, that probably wasn't surprising at all, because that's our day-to-day experience in a lot of ways. You know from experience that things aren't quite right. At this point, you probably expect that the curse is going to be broken. After all, that's what Jesus does in the world and in our lives. But the undoing of the curse on work probably doesn't go down in the way you'd imagine. I think most people expect that the fix for the curse on work is the elimination of work. Like, work is messed up, so God's going to get rid of it. Like, God made the world good, but we broke it, and so he's going to get rid of that. Like, eternity as a really long retirement, but perhaps a more spiritual retirement where we sing songs to God instead of having margaritas on the beach. But still, this kind of like work is done, and now we're going to just party or worship or something for eternity. Let's see how Isaiah 65 pictures it. What Deanna read today, starting in verse 17, behold, I create new heavens and a new earth. So apparently there's in some form an earth and an ongoing earthly existence. It's not just God's people being taken up into heaven. And it's certainly not the caricature of heaven where we're kind of floating on clouds as disembodied beings with harps and stuff. That is not a biblical picture of what our eternity looks like. This uh, prophecy in, in Isaiah 65, the new heavens and new earth, by the way, is what John references at the very end of the Bible in Revelation 21. So we know Isaiah isn't just talking about something in Israel's immediate future back in like 700 BC-ish. He's talking about our future too. And if we go on to verse 21 and following, it gets really interesting with respect to work. So verse 21, they shall build houses and inhabit them. They shall plant vineyards and eat their fruit. They shall not build and another inhabit. They shall not plant and another eat. For like the days of a tree shall the days of my people be, and my chosen shall long enjoy the work of their hands. They shall not labor in vain or bear children for calamity, for they shall be the offspring of the blessed of the Lord and their descendants with them. They shall build and plant and work and labor. There's apparently still work in this new kingdom, but it's not work marred by the fall anymore. People get to experience, even to enjoy, the work of their hands. They no longer labor in vain with futility and toil from the curse. There's justice in how people experience the fruit of their own labor. And also notice the nature of the work. It's something different than just restoring the Garden of Eden before the fall. In Genesis 1 and 2, the work was tending the garden and just beginning to fill, uh, fulfill that cultural mandate to be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth and have dominion over it to create civilization. Now that humanity has done that for many, many generations, building civilization from the raw materials that God provided, sometimes well, often not so well, the new creation being pictured here isn't a new garden. It's a new city. You see Jerusalem over and over again here, and then even more in the parallel passage in Revelation 21. John refers to the holy city, the new Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven. So the work isn't just gardening, it's building. And Isaiah 60, earlier in this same larger prophecy in Isaiah, pictures all the nations bringing their best work products into this new kingdom. There's just like a long list of different things coming from different places where they have different expertise and different raw materials. 
And from that, I think we can infer that a wide range of creative work is represented by planting and building. It's not just planting and building. It's, that's representative of all these different things that humans do, expressing the image of God using the raw materials that God gave us. So work doesn't get abolished, it gets redeemed. It doesn't get abolished, it gets redeemed. And apparently it continues in some form in the internal kingdom. Honestly, it can be hard to get our heads around this because it's so rare that we experience work untainted by the fall. You may never have experienced that, but occasionally we get these little glimpses of it. If you think about those times when your work, whether on a job or elsewhere in your life, felt particularly meaningful or life-giving or effective. Think about when you experienced, however fleetingly, a sense of flow and joy in your work. Think about those times where you felt like you were really effectively collaborating with somebody else to accomplish something. And there's something bigger than you at work in your work. Again, it's probably not your main experience with work for the reasons we talked about over the last three weeks, but those little glimpses are a shadow of how God made work and what redeemed work could look like. Now, we've been talking about the future, but how does our current work relate to this future vision? It's good to have hope in some kind of future for work, but it'd be nice if there was something that applied to today, and I think this does. As we've talked about before, there's this already but not yet dynamic with the kingdom of God where Jesus has inaugurated something. He started it, but he hasn't fully finished it until he returns. And so we need to look at how Jesus talked about the kingdom of God or kingdom of heaven, which are phrases he uses kind of interchangeably depending on which gospel you're reading. When Jesus begins his earthly ministry, Matthew summarizes the content of Jesus' preaching as repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. And then a little later in Matthew in the Sermon on the Mount, Matthew 5 to 7, Jesus talks about what it's like to live in this kingdom. And when he teaches his disciples how to pray in Matthew 6, he says, pray like this. Our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. May your kingdom come on earth as it is in heaven. So this, I think, is that already but not yet dynamic where Jesus inaugurated the kingdom of God on earth when he came the first time, but it's not fully coming. We're not fully experiencing Isaiah 65, Revelation 21, until he comes again. This becomes even more clear at the end of Jesus' ministry. In Luke 19, Jesus is about to enter Jerusalem at the start of the final week of his life on earth. It's uh, what we celebrate as Palm Sunday. So he's about to go into Jerusalem on a colt of a donkey with everybody cheering him on and saying, Hosanna, Hosanna in the highest. And Luke writes that Jesus proceeded to tell a parable right before this because he was near to Jerusalem and because his disciples supposed that the kingdom of God was to appear immediately. So they were, they were expecting Isaiah 65 to happen right then because the king is here and he's about to go into Jerusalem triumphantly. And so Jesus tells them a parable to explain what's going on. Yeah. If you want to turn over to Luke 19 and follow along with me, you're welcome to. I'm going to read a few chunks of this. It says, a nobleman went into a far country to receive for himself a kingdom and then return. Calling 10 of his servants, he gave them 10 minas. A mina is a amount of currency. It was about three months of wages for a laborer. 
So we're talking about a, a decently large but not extravagant chunk of responsibility. So he gives to 10 servants each one of these minas and tells them, engage in business until I come. So he goes away, he gets crowned king, and he comes back. And when he comes back, he calls the servants to account for the work that they did while he was gone. One says, Lord, your mina has made 10 minas more. And he said to him, well done, good servant, because you have been faithful in very little, you shall have authority over 10 cities. And then the second comes, saying, Lord, your mina has made five minas. And he said to him, and you are to be over five cities. And then another came, saying, Lord, here is your mina, which I kept laid away in a handkerchief, for I was afraid of you, because you are a severe man. You take what you did not deposit and reap what you did not sow. He said to him, I will condemn you with your own words, you wicked servant. You knew that I was a severe man, taking what I did not deposit and reaping what I did not sow? Why then did you not put my money in the bank, and it, at my coming I might have collected it with interest? And he said to those who stood by, take the mina from him and give it to the one who has ten minas. And they said to him, Lord, he has ten minas. I tell you that everyone who has, to everyone who has, more will be given, but from the one who has not, even what he has will be taken away. This parable is intended to tell Jesus' followers, his disciples then, us now, something about the nature of the kingdom and its coming, as well as how we're supposed to behave while we wait. The nobleman in the parable is going away to receive his kingdom, which is apparently his already in some sense. So he's going to get crowned king, like to make it official. And then he's coming back to fully realize being king over that kingdom. So there's some waiting involved, but it's not uncertain waiting. The nobleman is going to claim the kingdom that's already his, and his servants are, by extension, servants of the king. And it's also not passive waiting, because the servants left behind in the interim have a responsibility now that impacts their responsibility later. They're supposed to steward what the nobleman has given them to take care of. And notice what the reward is for exercising that responsibility well. It's not here's a bigger bonus, go take a vacation. It's, here's more responsibility, here's more authority, keep doing good work. So what does that parable mean for us, where we are now? Um, I think it's clear in the context that Jesus is the nobleman and his followers are the servants. And the kingdom he's going to receive, I think, is the ultimate kingdom we talked about a few minutes ago that Isaiah and Revelation described. But what are the minas? That seems to matter a lot. And what's the equivalent of investing them? I think we can take the minas to be all the resources that God has given us to live out his purposes. Going all the way back to Genesis 1 and the cultural mandate, it's the raw materials of creation that we're to have dominion over. It's the image of God that God has put in us and our ability to create and build that extends from that. It's the spiritual and natural gifts that he gives each of us. There's actually another really similar parable that Matthew records Jesus telling in a different context, and you're probably more familiar with that one. In the other parable, it's not minas, it's talents. And the different servants get different amounts to work with, but it has a really similar structure. Now, a mina, as I've already said, is like three months wages for a laborer. We think of a talent as a skill or an ability, like um, you're good at math. And so sometimes when you read the parable, it's like, I'm going to make you really good at some things, and I'm going to make you a little less good at some things. You get like three talents, you get one. But that's not what a talent was at the time. A talent was a measure of money, like a mina or a drachma or a shekel. And a talent was a lot of money. 
like a million dollars in today's money. So if we put all that together and kind of take that Jesus told both of those parables that um, he's using slightly differently, but it's kind of a story that he tells frequently to make a point about the kingdom, I think we can say that we have a responsibility now while we wait for the return of King Jesus to take the resources he's given us and to put them to work towards his purposes. And along the way, we're to become the kind of servants who can take on greater responsibility in that future kingdom that Isaiah was talking about. Not just do the work now and then you're done, but do the work well and then become the kind of person who can do more of this kingdom work for eternity. So how we work now really matters, not just now, but eternally. And this brings us to our third and last topic for the morning, which is how we work as citizens of that already but not yet kingdom of God. And I think there's, there's three things we can do there. Number one, our work should be oriented towards God's purposes. Number two, our work should be empowered by God's resources. And number three, our work should be covered in God's grace. Oriented towards God's purposes, empowered by God's resources, and covered in God's grace. And we're going to talk about what each of those means. First off, our work, whatever it is, should be oriented towards God's purposes. And this doesn't just apply to people who do like professional church work full-time, as if God's purposes are only purposes that happen when you're preaching or leading worship or something. Whatever our work is, our work should be oriented towards God's purposes. This implies that we should know what those are. We should know what's important to him. There's a ditch that we can fall into here when it comes to purpose that people of our time, I think, are particularly susceptible to, which is we're desperate to have a purpose, a meaning in our lives, which isn't a bad thing in itself. We're made by God to do meaningful work towards meaningful ends. The trouble, the kind of the ditch you can fall into, is when we expect to have a unique and special purpose, and we get paralyzed waiting for God to reveal it to us. And I, I talk with people when I'm kind of counseling, coaching them on their work, and I see this all the time, like, I'm just holding space now until a message comes down from heaven that tells me exactly the thing that God has particularly made me to do. And until then, my work's not going to have purpose in some way. But fortunately, like 99% of what we need to know about God's purposes in the world and his purposes for us are revealed in his word. We don't need a special personal revelation to get going with this. That happens sometimes for some people, and I think it's called out in Scripture because usually it's before you have to do something really hard. <laughs> Anytime you get that kind of clear message from God, it seems to be, you're going to forget why you're doing this because it's going to be really hard, and so I'm going to give you something to look back at. <laughs> so it's a, a risky thing to wish for. It happens sometimes, but it's not the way God mostly works with people. So we can get most of what our purpose is from just being in God's word, and it's all over, but I'm just going to highlight a few examples. So we've already talked about Genesis 1.28, the cultural mandate, be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth and subdue it and have dominion. That was for everybody. Micah 6.8, he has told you, O man, what is good and what does the Lord require of you, but to do justice and love kindness and to walk humbly with your God. 
And of course, we can look at the beginning of the story and the end of the story. What does creation look like before the fall in Genesis 1 and 2? And what does God have people doing there? And what does it look like in the end in passages like the one we read from Isaiah today? And that'll show us the kind of world that God intends this to be. And we can infer a, a way of joining God in the work that he's doing around that. So I think you can ask yourself, how does or how can my work make it so humans can thrive in right relationship to each other and to God as God intended? I think that's the, the big question, and I'll say it again. How can my work make it so humans can thrive in right relationship to each other and to God as God intended? Another way to look at it, does your work bring somehow life and healing and hope and beauty to the world in maybe some small way? Does it make the world look more like what God says he's doing in prophecy like Isaiah 65? Now, one thing that's essential, if you want your work to be aligned with God's purposes, you have to spend time listening to him. You have to know him, which means getting into his word, or more importantly, getting his word into you. I know when I start my day by reading the Bible, I get recentered on what matters most in my life and work, and it, it almost doesn't matter what part of it I'm reading because God's revealing himself throughout all the pages of Scripture. It's in there intentionally, and I'm often surprised by this. I didn't go to something that seemed to specifically apply to my work. I'm just going through the reading plan that I'm doing, and I find things that change my day. And I think one of the best ways to do this is to read through the whole Bible systematically instead of just going straight to the same things we like over and over again or flipping it open and doing the, the random, like, God's going to use my finger to point out the thing he wants to say to me, which, again, he can do, but probably isn't the way he always works. And if you've never done this, if you've never read through the whole Bible in a systematic way, I encourage you to do it. My favorite way to do it is... You can search for the five-day-a-week reading plan, which I know I've recommended to several of you. I just loop back around every year and do it again and find new things every year. And the five-day-a-week plan allows you to fall behind a little bit and still stay caught up instead of every day. You can get overwhelmed and fall behind and get defeated, especially when you get into genealogies, like in, in numbers. <laughs> it's, it's good to have some space there. So if, if you really want to get to know God and know what he cares about, like spend time in the whole word of God and something like that read through the Bible in a year, five days a week is a great way to do it. And you don't need to wait for January. This isn't a New Year's resolution thing. If you download the five-day-a-week reading plan, it's going to have dates on it. You can ignore those. It's okay to make the beginning of your year tomorrow and just jump right in at Genesis 1 and get through the whole Bible between now and next June. On the micro level, so that was the big picture. On the micro level, one of my favorite ways to stay centered on God's purposes in my work is to remember that he's already at work in and through the people around me. It's not like as a Christian, even as maybe the only Christian in your workspace, that like God arrives with you in some form and he wasn't. <laughs> Uh, omnipresent before and working already. He's already at work in and through the people around us. So my frequent prayer in a work context is, God, what are you already doing here? Like, show me what you're already doing here. And a lot of times he will call to mind something I've read in his word 
or he'll make a conversation with somebody possible. He'll just show me opportunities for creativity and beauty and goodness and justice and life in my work just because I'm paying attention to what's important to him and what is he already doing here. I think that's a prayer that God loves to answer. It's kind of an echo of your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven, as Jesus taught us to pray. This brings us to our second application. So the first was our work should be oriented towards God's purposes. Second, our work should be empowered by God's resources. In one sense, our work is always empowered by God's resources, whether we pay attention to this or not, because we're ultimately, as creatures, not bringing anything to the table that's truly our own. Even our very existence is a gift from God, and everything we have comes from what he provided first. But I think as followers of Jesus, we can be more deliberate and comprehensive about this. So when we talk about God's resources for our work, what are we talking about? Well, there's several things. First, going back to Genesis, we have the basic raw materials of creation. Seeing those as a gift of God to be used for his purposes makes us appreciate what he's provided and not waste it. And it should compel us to steward those things well, to care for what he's given us, to care for the earth that he's provided for us. In the parables of the minas or the talents, it was the king's financial resources that the servants were given to work with. And, and I think we can apply this pretty directly. Any material resources that we have are given to us to steward towards God's purposes. But I think it's also reasonable to run with the common metaphorical applications, like our talents, skills, gifts, even our good desires, our resources from God to be used towards his purposes. God's resources for our work also include the people that he's put in our lives to partner with us, to support us, to lead us. And seeing the people around you as a gift from God in your work changes things. They're, they're not just annoyances or distractions from the work. They are part of what God has given us to do the work. Or sometimes, like we talked about in the last couple of weeks, God is using our work to work on us, our work in us. And sometimes he's particularly using the people around us to work on us and in us. Thinking about God's resources for your work, I'd suggest, is actually a better way to look for your unique purpose or calling rather than expecting direct instructions to come down from heaven. If you get familiar with the general purposes of God from his word, and then you look at how those interact with the unique resources that he's put in and around you, and then look at the specific needs that he's put around you, the intersection of those things looks a whole lot like, what is God intending to do with me? And you can infer a lot from that without waiting for the specific message to come down from heaven. Finally, when it comes to our work being empowered by God's resources, we can't ignore that Scripture says, as Christians, God has put his spirit, the third person of the Trinity, in us. If we're going to have any hope of contributing to the redemptive work that God is doing in the world, we're going to need to depend on the Holy Spirit working in us and through us. And depending on the Holy Spirit makes space in your work for the fruit of the Spirit from Galatians 5 to show up. Love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. Talk about working in a powerful, countercultural way. You show up with those things patience particularly stands out to me 
in our entitled instant gratification world. My friend Wayman Howard, who some of you have met, uh, has a ministry teaching 1 Corinthians 13, you know, the love chapter that everybody reads at weddings and mostly not the rest of the time. Um, well, Wayman goes around to churches and just teaches what does 1 Corinthians 13 mean? What does it mean to love and the way that God describes? And as you probably remember from the last wedding you went to, love is patient. And so Wayman talks about <laughs> what does patience mean? Patience, he says, is letting Christ be Lord of our expectations. Patience is letting Christ be Lord of our expectations. It's not like we often, I think, mistakenly think that patience is you no longer have expectations. Like I pray for patience, and now I think that I'm just going to float through the world unaffected by everything around me and just not care what happens. I don't think that's how it works. Patience is acknowledging our expectations and then actively surrendering them to Christ and saying, I care about your purposes. I care about this other person more than I care about having my way. And that's a thing that can only happen by the power of the Holy Spirit in us. That's why it's a fruit of the Spirit. So we, we depend on God in that moment where we say, this thing is not going the way I expected. Like, I expected that person to get their task done so that I wouldn't have to stay late and work on this thing today. And I'm feeling really impatient with them right now, maybe judgmental, and I'm about to say something unkind. And that's a time to depend on the Holy Spirit and say, Jesus, I want you to be Lord over my expectations. Spirit, make that possible in me in the way only you can. And, and that's what patience actually looks like. Ultimately, being empowered by God's resources in your work, in, in my work, means not squandering, not wasting what he's entrusted you with. We don't want to be like the servant who hid the mina instead of investing it. As Paul writes in Colossians 3, whatever you do, work heartily as for the Lord and not for men, knowing that from the Lord you will receive the inheritance as your reward. You are serving the Lord Christ. You don't have to be the best in the world at whatever you do. Different people get different gifts, maybe different amounts of gifts. But I think we need to strive to do the best work we can with whatever resources God has put in our lives. Now, I have to be careful here because something like that can be catnip for workaholics. Uh, so when I say do the best that you can with the resources you have, you can get into this. I don't want to squander anything, and now I'm obsessed with work. So hear this in the context of the last couple of weeks where we talked about the dangers of work as identity and work as idol. And don't miss that in Isaiah 65, work is part of this larger picture of enjoying the fruit of our labor, and it includes family and community and worship and prayer and all sorts of other things. So we need to put it in its right place, but we also need to realize that it matters, and God has given us something to use towards his purposes, and we don't want to waste that. All right, last application. When we work as citizens of the kingdom of God, our work should be covered in God's grace. We are citizens in the kingdom entirely by grace. We were adopted. We did not earn our place in this kingdom. And when you know that everything you have, everything you accomplish, is a gift of grace, you can approach your work without entitlement and with loads of gratitude. You can be quick to seek forgiveness when you mess up because you don't need to prove that you're somehow perfect. 
you don't earn your salvation or your intrinsic worth. This is a really essential corrective if we're going to attempt to steward the resources God has given us really well, if we're going to work hard because our ideals for that are inevitably going to be bigger than our actual performance. We're going to fall short of what we want to do. Um, like we talked about in the last couple of weeks, we're going to sin against other people and it's going to affect our work and their work. And so knowing that everything we have is grace allows us to be quick to seek forgiveness and reconciliation in that. And then finally, remembering that you are a recipient of grace, you can extend grace to the people around you when they fail and when they hurt you, because they will. Our world is pretty fired up right now about justice and punishment and vengeance, and there's not a whole lot of grace in the world as a whole. And so this is a big part of our witness to the world, being quick to extend grace in a judgmental world. It's one of the ways that the kingdom is salt and light, like Jesus said earlier in the Sermon on the Mount. So to wrap this up, as you do your work, remember that it matters, not just here, but eternally because you're a citizen of the eternal kingdom of God that in some form continues to include good work. Orient your work towards God's purposes, consciously steward God's resources and empowerment in your work, and let your work be covered by God's grace. Let's pray.